Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, and fresh from her jaunt around England like a less gouty Samuel Johnson, I'm joined by pronunciation maven, which is a word <laughs> I like to say, Thea Lenadetsi. Thea, did you enjoy your holiday? <laughs> I did. I, I had a lovely time. <laughs> Thank you. You're looking very healthy. Thank you. That's what, what everyone said. Yeah, that, that really just means you I were just, looking terribly pasty exactly, before you Exactly. I've reached a normal human colour. Yeah. What did you do? I attempted to walk from St Ives to Falmouth, which is 100 miles, and in. I managed about... Well, I, we attempted to do it in six days. You're supposed to take 10 days, and that was it was Ooh. ridiculous of us to attempt it because we only managed six, 60 miles, not six miles, 60, 60 miles. miles. And so you, you gave up in disgrace? Um, I, I, had, I got a very sore foot, so, oh <laughs> so I gave up, I gave up. It was the gout. Yeah, the, gout. <laughs> the gout. The gout. The gout. So you, you Did you try any local cheese? I didn't have any Cornish yarg, if that's what you're. Do you like a, do you like a Cornish yarg? Um, it's okay. It's I. I there are other cheeses that I prefer. And actually, what I should say is I had a really incredible sandwich, <laughs> cheddar and ham sandwich. And normally you hate cheddar. And it tasted so much the better for having been in my bag for twenty miles on a very very hot yeah, Cornish that, day. This, this means nothing. You were just hungry. Even, even this, the this wilted lettuce. Yeah, this is just you being hungry. <laughs> now, as talking about cheese, it's not just irrelevant burble like normally. We do have a cheese section of the podcast today in your honour. Yeah, it was gonna, not weekly, just just, no, just no. today. <laughs> it feels like weekly sometimes we talk about cheese, but actually no. Just for today, we are we have a we are you've got a book reviewed on the subject of cheese, haven't you? Yes. We will get to that. <laughs> uh, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, by the way, do Google TLS subscriptions, type pod one in the offer code section and you can get six issues for six pounds. Coming up on the Cheesy Podcast this week, we have a special in the TLS on European thinkers and have a lead piece on Michel Foucault. To accompany it, Bianca Maria Fontana has reviewed a book originally edited by Foucault of letters written in the 18th century in which aggrieved people demanded that their troublesome relations would be summarily locked up. 
Bianca Maria will join us to explain more about this superficially attractive arrangement. Uh, just how central was slavery to America's economic development and how useful is it to dwell upon it in the 21st century? Two large questions addressed in Stephanie McCurry's review of Slavery's Capitalism, A New History of American Economics. Was the plunder of black life the driving force in making America great? And in honour of Thea's return, we're going to be talking cheese. Not the American synonym for money, but the actual dairy product itself. Paul Levy has reviewed the potentially superfluous Oxford Companion to Cheese, which is sitting on Thea's desk as we speak back in the office. And we'll be talking, primarily to Thea, I might imagine, about the book. Thea and Levy describes in it, in the review, it's the weakest on cheese politics. We, it's a very interesting field. Is it? We're going to have none of that shilly-shallying here and I hope we get thoroughly into cheese politics over the next few minutes. Michel Foucault, one of the most influential European thinkers of his age or any other, took a break from writing his epic History of Sexuality to work on an edition of letters he discovered in the Bastille archives. They dated from the pre-revolutionary period and contained requests from citizens to the lieutenant of police to imprison a member of their own family by means of the Lettre de Cachet. The Lettre was a despotic mechanism by which royal authority could bypass normal legal procedures and lead to the indefinite detention of any person for any reason. But these examples didn't involve matters of political intrigue or the Machiavellian wrangling of high state affairs. They were by people trying to settle personal grudges, domestic complaints, in the most brutal of fashions. Imagine, says Bianca Maria Fontana in her review of a new edition of the letters, titled with commendable understatement, Disorderly Families. Imagine living in a country where your domestic conflicts could be solved by having persons troublesome to you swiftly and legally arrested and taken away. It's a thrilling and ignoble thought, and we might all start compiling a list. Uh, Bianca Maria joins Thea and me now. Um, Bianca Maria, let's talk about the overall picture presented by the book. What sort of domestic disputes were proposed to be settled by having one of the parties taken away without trial? Well, most of them are actually, and this is what is striking about the archive, are very ordinary issues that actually could happen in most families. Husbands who'd been deserted by their wives, uh, people beating their spouses up, rebellious children, people who were drunks or uh, had other vices like gambling and wasted away the family money. Uh, the, the really, I think, crucial point is that most of these people resorted to this system, not because they were especially Machiavellian or cruel, but because they had no money to go to court. This, for me, as a historian, was a bit of a discovery because all the cases I knew of were important cases of famous people who had been persecuted for their ideas or their lifestyle. Well, here you can see that most of the people involved were people of rather modest condition who found it easier and sort of cheaper to address themselves to some officer of the police rather than having to go through tribunals that were very costly and slow in their action. 
And were the, these petitions often granted? Do we know how many times well, people got the knock on the door as a result? I don't have statistics, but what is clear is, and this is the other fascinating aspect about the archive, is that the police, well, I, I say police, but these, these are really sort of functionaries of the executive. You don't have to think of the police in modern terms. These people took a lot of pain to investigate the case. You know, they would talk to neighbors, they would ascertain the facts, they would uh, try to find out what was going on. And actually, in quite a lot of cases, they said no to the request. Obviously, a, a very special category that I forgot to mention is people suffering from mental illnesses. There was no medical approach to these questions, so the families had to sort them out themselves. Something that must specifically have been of interest to, to Foucault, who had by that time already written The History of Madness and The Birth of the Clinic. Yes, of course. Certainly Foucault and uh, his co-editor, uh, Alain Farge, were interested in the issue because they were interested in the way in which a state could control people in the most intimate and ordinary aspect of their lives. Well, I'm interested in that point because what do you think this tells us about the French pre-revolutionary society that the royal authority could be petitioned in this way in a kind of, to misuse the word, democratic fashion? It, it was both people of both genders, it was people of quite lowly status could access what seems like the state's impartial justice system for free. Is there something positive here or, or is it slightly more uh, frightening than that? Well, um, for free isn't, uh, first of all, let me correct you, whoever was in prison had to, to be kept at the family's expense. Okay. But for free, I, I think that this, as you rightly say, somewhat democratic approach, it's partly a function of the way in which the justice system was dysfunctional. Justice was to be bought for a price. The legal sort of community had really turned themselves into a very inaccessible caste that served their own interest and, and tried to, to profit from their position. So in a way, turning to the king was a way of bypassing a sort of intermediate power that had become particularly dysfunctional. Sort of cutting out a vast swathes of, of the bureaucracy and going straight to the king's ear, as it were. Uh, all the, the, the letters, as Foucault calls them, were not written by the people themselves. They were drafted by public scriveners who were recruited for the, for the task. But it was a lot cheaper paying them than paying a magistrate. It's, it's interesting, as, I mean, in terms of the form of the book itself, uh, it's interesting how it seems to fit into... Foucault's idea, kind of idea of um, his historiographical method as being archaeological, because he's sort of it's a gathering and dusting off of, of, of bits and bobs for for want of a better term. And it, originally he didn't he didn't want to explain or absorb those pieces into an overarching structure, did he? That that sort of came on the suggestion of the other editor. That that's what uh, Alessage explains that originally uh, Foucault really just wanted to publish a letters. Uh, and she persuaded him that they needed some kind of framework. And maybe it wasn't an unreasonable sort of demand because, it, you know, it, it's quite difficult for an ordinary reader to be plunged in this rather alien universe. But it is true that reading the book now, the framework has aged much uh, worse than the actual content of the letter because. Uh, there is a sort of contrived attempt to give a kind of methodological shape to the whole thing, 
which reflects very much a kind of debates you had in the late 70s and 80s. And right now, historians don't handle those things in the same way. I suppose that the main change is that today, looking into people's ordinary lives and into ordinary persons is considered normal for the historical profession and even something that is, uh, gives a lot of useful information. But in Foucault's time, uh, the idea of looking at people as individuals and not as social groups or classes seemed a very, to use the words of one of his critics, populistic approach to the issue. Is it not? Um, do we regard that? Do you regard that as an improvement? That now we 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 relish, I suppose, the anecdotal and the emotional because they're indicative of broader truths. Or do you applaud the trend more f- f- towards these sort of personal histories that we have now? I suppose I do. I, I realise that the risk is that a lot of uh, history done in this way may end up to to produce uh, loads of dribble, just you know, just <laughs> of just rejoins a kind of curiosity uh, for people's lives that we see in many uh, forms today of observation of celebrities, or simply you know, it turns into a big kind of TV reality show. Uh, but I think it is really very instructive because it, it, it allows us to look beyond the surface of categories and generalizations that uh, uh, may hide some important realities. I mean, I, I, I'm not a social historian myself, so I don't practice this kind of history, but I have to confess that as a reader, I greedily eat Uh, eat up uh, everything which is offered to me, which is on this particular register, because I always find that you can get something interesting out of it. Yeah, and and do you you get a perspective, though, on pre-revolutionary France, the relationship between people and their sense of the monarch from this? I mean, is it possible to draw a, a broader historical point here? Well, you can certainly draw the picture of a very differential society. This is something that is very apparent in in the style. You know, I explained before the letters are written by professionals and they are written in a very specific mode, uh, which is always the mode of supplication and humble request. Uh, So you certainly get the sense of a very differential society. Uh, you also get the sense of uh, a society in which money and social status at whatever level is absolutely dominant. In fact, most of the disputes, but I, I suppose you could say the same thing about family disputes today, are really about money. Yeah. You know, inheritance, uh, uh, successions, uh, use of family property, and so on. Um, so in that sense... Um, you get the idea of a society which is really clinging to correct behavior in spite of the fact that lots of things are sort of crumbling away. Well, it sounds in, in any event, you said you, you, you ended up greedily, Bianca Maria. It's a, it's a good read, is, is I suppose the last point to make about this. These are letters that are, that, that, that are interesting. Interestingly, they are. I mean, I say interestingly because you would expect that letters drafted by professional scribblers on issues that in the end are quite repetitive because there isn't an infinite variety of domestic dispute. But actually it reads like a series of popular novels because 
the archive and, and uh, the information you get on such individual cases is very extensive, and it sort of leaves you in suspension, waiting for what the authorities will decide. And then, you know, you try to imagine the end of the story. Will these people get together again? Actually, I forgot to mention that a lot of these cases ended up obviously in some kind of reconciliation. But, you know, you have people who run away abroad, people who marry illegally, people who, and so on. So, you know, paradoxically, you keep reading on because you wonder what's going to happen next. And and in a sense, you must be, you're sort of being asked to judge for yourself and, you know, you're wondering... To be the king. Yeah, to be be the king. Yes, I think that is inevitable because even if you decide that you're just, uh, uh, you know, an impartial historian it's it's impossible not to take side you know you you read peroration from an indignant husband and you start thinking it must have been a real pain to live with <laughs> and that his wife was perfectly right to elope wherever it is that that, that she she went to uh, and so on but in some cases on the other hand you really are left in doubt you know who's telling the truth who's deforming reality so i think it's actually for the reader, it's certainly a very good exercise, and also for the reader who's not a professional historian who doesn't have a strong commitment to the history of the Ancien Regime. There's something else there. Well, Bianca, Maria, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. I like this idea of history becoming more personal and more emotional and less mm-hmm. based on grand theories. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm obviously a disgraceful amateur, but I wouldn't necessarily want to pick up a history book filled with grand theories anymore. I think. The idea of individual lives is more appealing. Mm. Well, and interestingly, in relation to this book, it sounds like it's something that you can read on at least two levels. So you can read it for the the human colour of it. um, And you can also read it and and try to fit it into Foucault's work, more broadly speaking. So, you know, in in so far as he would have been looking into the overlaps between knowledge and power and how those are built into society. This is knowledge that's sort of built on, you know, I am a husband and I know my wife to have been unfaithful, but, you know, what's your knowledge based on? Your knowledge is based on rumours that you've heard down at the pub or whatever, and then that somehow still becomes... And what you want the state to do about it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And also interesting that Foucault, I think, who can be a little hard to read sometimes, the notion that he's this very light-touch editor who Mm. just wants to say, I'm not going to theorise about this, just here are these letters, just read them. Exactly, and it sounds like like he has a model, had a model relationship with his co-editor as well, who was a young academic who I think no one had ever really heard of, and he... He completely seems to have worked beautifully with her and taken everything that she said on board and just sounds like... Yeah, a... There'll be some letters. <laughs> there'll be, there'll be the, we should do, try and look at the archive of their letters to one another, which <laughs> may or may not prove to be the case. Letters de cachet. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You cannot forget how much they took from us and how they transfigured our very bodies into sugar, tobacco, cotton and gold. So said the author Ta-Nehisi Coates in 2015, voicing the idea that the American economic system has its roots in the subjugation and exploitation of slaves. Stephanie McCurry has reviewed a book called Slavery's Capitalism, a collection of essays that seeks to establish what consensus there is around connecting the modern economy of America with its slave-holding past. And some consensus there does seem to be that the slave South was the leading edge of global capitalism. Indeed, that slavery is a kind of personification of capitalism, of the commodification that must take place there, by which people are judged by a purely monetary value. 
Capitalism, the thinking goes, like slavery, is coercive at its core. There's a clear connection, therefore, between the past and the present. Is this a helpful or useful line of thinking, though? Well, Stephanie McCurry joins Thea and me now. Uh, Stephanie, let's start with the the premise of the, the collection, if we may. Why is it important, or is it important, to calibrate precisely the role of slavery in the American economy? Well, I think one of the things we've known for a long time, but with increasing detail in the recent, say, 10 years, is how much the economy of the slave south and the profits that were generated by it infiltrated or sluiced through the entire national economy of the United States in the first, what I think of as the first republic, say, from the revolution until the Civil War. You know, we've known that for a long time, that politically and economically slavery was crucial to the structural shape, you know, the Constitution and the politics and the shape of political economy in the United States. And in recent years, we've learned in even more detail, you know, where the money came from, where it was invested, uh, where the profits ended up. And, you know, it confirms the view that slavery or the, the cotton economy primarily was no marginal part of American economic development, but a central part of it. And that raises a whole series, of course, of interesting moral and ethical questions about institutions that were implicated in that growth, but who then tried to disassociate themselves from the profits of slavery. So that's one very big part of what this is all about. Insurance companies, banks, institutions like that. And so what's the book trying to do or this collection trying to do is there an overarching point to this, in order to point fingers to make the case that that there needs to be more of a reckoning with this bloody and disgraceful past well i don't think anybody in the historical profession would dispute that the united states has a long way to go in reckoning with its past and the, you know the foundational nature of slavery as an institution and i don't think there are many people who would deny that Slavery had a lasting effect, for example, in African-American life into the 20th and maybe even 21st century. The question is the nature of the connection and the nature of the exploitation. So what I would say is that the uncontroversial part is that slavery was, uh, you know, that that is a form of political economy and of of profit-making and of labor exploitation Slavery was a social form that was connected to the larger political economy of the United States. But whether its parts were identical to the parts that were emerging, say, in Boston and in New York, and which were dynamic and fully capitalist in the sense that we would now think of it, organized around the exploitation of free labor. So the question is not whether these things were connected, but whether they are the same. The authors of this book are are arguing the latter. And moreover, and perhaps, you know, this is a new, very fashionable claim, that what capitalism became in the United States was actually worked out first on cotton plantations with slave labor in the American South. And I think that that's a very unsubstantiated claim. So where does the Civil War and the the emancipation and the reconstruction that follows, where does that sit in all of this? Well, that was one of the main points that I was trying to make because I'm very concerned about the consequences of this. If you're, if you're someone like Edward Baptist who wants to say that what happened on cotton plantations will tell us a great deal about what happens in Amazon warehouses, then 
uh, obviously, this the what the historian knows has far more portability and possibly relevance. But that, is that not kind of is that not slightly offensive? I I I was reading your your criticism of that really, and I I kind of found myself nodding to sort of have draw an equivalence between the abuse of slave labour and and workers in an Amazon warehouse kind of feels a bit facile, doesn't it? And my point is, how are we ever to grapple with the particularities of not just labour exploitation, but social degradation, sexual violence, all the various particular aspects of slavery, not being allowed to marry, not being recognized as husband and wife, not recognized as mother or father of your children, being forced to have your children sold away from you, perhaps into forced coupling, all the kinds of things that made life so very difficult to even reproduce for African Americans under the conditions of slavery, and which are quite different from the forms of, you know, it's not like life was so easy after slavery, but part of what's going on in this literature is that they created a paradigm in which the Civil War itself becomes a problem to explain. Is this, is this part of a, a wider trend, do you think, and perhaps especially when historians are trying to kind of break into a mainstream and, and make, perhaps write a book that will have a broader social current appeal, is the risk that by trying to, to present these, these connections, these continuities right back through history, we, we gloss over the difference, the particularity, and, and the fact that things ha- are changing or have changed? Well, this is certainly um, my view of it. And it is also not a way of escaping any kind of accountability for what emancipation was or wasn't in terms of reconfiguring racial exploitation in the United States. I mean, certainly I'm not arguing that it was the end of racism. What I would say is that precisely as you just said, that the historian's job is to attend to these matters of rupture and reconfiguration and new, new alignments of power you know, unpredictability and contingency. I mean, the Civil War was a massive wrench. Nobody in 1860 thought that slavery could be ended uh, completely and totally within a short period of time, like four years. It was only war and slaveholders' secession that made that even possible. They were the ones who introduced the element of tremendous unpredictability that created this historic opening. In a sense, the question left hanging is one that you put in the review, which is if slavery and capitalism were synonymous, then why did capitalism sort of kill itself? Why did it come to, to an end? And also, that? more important, what I don't understand, Stephanie, you can go back a further stage behind. Why is there such a desire to make capitalism and slavery synonymous? Why can't people just say, which seems to me almost self-evident, that slavery had clear capitalistic elements to it, very obviously? But there's no need to make the simplistic statement that the two coincide absolutely. Yes, I, I, I agree. And I, first of all, I, I'm not sure what happened in Britain, where there's a longer, I think, sort of memory of a left tradition of talking about slavery and capitalism that has this particular kind of connection, but different formulation. In the United States, we have that, but it's a much thinner tradition and much more easily forgotten. So one of the things that goes on just at a scholarly level is there's all these claims about this being new. And certainly it's not new in the obvious sense. The debate over the nature of the relationship between slavery and capitalism has been going on since at least Derek Williams, right? So, um, you know, since the 1940s. So, and in the United States, Eugene Genovese was was direct and central to that discussion. 
So I think the, you know, part of it is a desire, I think, to, you know, is a, a, in many ways a, a, um, a laudable desire to weigh in on the, conde- on the contemporary condition, to make historians relevant to a debate about the legacy of slavery in the United States. And I certainly feel that this is long overdue, far too underdeveloped in the United States. And in that sense, I share that goal. I just don't share this particular approach to that goal. Well, I do think, uh, Steph, we'll have to leave it there, but I, I think that the piece is a, is, a, is a very good addition and, to a certain extent, revision of, of that. It's, it's, it's an interesting subject. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I, it's an interesting she raised the question of our relationship to slavery. And I think because slavery in some way predates the empire, we have our own, you know, there's a whole swathe of extra guilt falls our way Mm. after slavery. And we accept that ports like Liverpool and Bristol were built on the backs of slavery. We recognise that, but Mm. we also recognise that we were early in putting a stop to it. We did put a stop to it before lots of other people. But then we've got all the imperial guilt to come anyway. So our self-lacerating view of history has another target as well. It doesn't feel like slavery is central, and it isn't central to our national identity in the way it must be in America, where there are so many people mm. who are the direct descendants of slaves. Exactly, and, and there are so many ways. I mean, we were talking about uh, you know, the idea of a chronicle of continuity versus a chronicle of, of change. Um, and it, it's true that there are unavoidable continuities that, you, that you'll see. And I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, um, Ava DuVernay's documentary called The 13th, about the 13th Amendment and how, basically, to, to summarise, a disproportionate number of, of uh, African-American men are incarcerated and it's sort of a, an iteration of slavery, a yeah. continuation of that. And, you know, these things are very compelling and that is a, it's an excellent documentary, but it's... Um, it's too simplistic. It's, though, it's it? too yeah. simplistic, I suppose, but also compelling and true, and you need to look at it and, and you need to you need to absorb it. But it's it's echoes rather than one song or and, one note. And it's interesting. We'll have to move on, but it's interesting that we've kind of had the anti Foucault approach to history raised here. We talked about Foucault's idea that here are some letters from 18th century France. Have a look at them and draw your own conclusions. Mm. Let's not surround it by the scaffolding of great theories about modern relevance. And that's precisely what this Slavery's Capitalism book seems to me, to be a, a set of slightly unwieldy scaffolding to say, look, there was cap- there was slavery, let's make it the same as capitalism and mm. then, then let's make it the, the direct link with today. It's, it's almost the opposite approach, isn't it? Exactly, because you, have to, you would have to, to be able to do that, you would have to achieve the impossible, which is, is to agree on a stable and absolute definition of what capitalism is and what all its central kind of goals and, and, and characteristics are, and then the same, with, oh. the same with slavery. And we've not managed to do that in this podcast. Uh, unbelievably, we've not. We'll do that again. We've got the, <laughs> next week we're solving the mind-body problem, so we're busy then. So two weeks' time, we will come up with an absolute definition of capitalism for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What better way to end today's rich pickings than with a generous serving of cheese? The Oxford Companion to Cheese, which recently landed with a resounding thump on my desk, has the whiff, to me at least, of a book well overdue. Stig looks less convinced. Paul Levy, the author and journalist often credited alongside Gail Green and Anne Barr with coining the term foodie back in the 1980s, is here. So, Paul, tell us about the book. Let's start perhaps with what it does well. What it does well is give an historical picture of the development of cheesemaking in the United States of America. Ah, well, that I mean, that sort of cuts us straight to the thing that it also doesn't do so well. I mean, because the, the book's main flaw, ironically enough, is a dietary one. I mean, there seems to be a lack of variety in terms of perspective. Yes, it is a little less well informed about cheesemaking in Britain and also doesn't seem to have um, grasped the possibility that cheesemaking in the UK greatly outstrips cheesemaking in the United States. It's important not to forget in all this that the expression American cheese normally refers to plastic wrapped sliced cheese. And that's what American cheese is, the, the, the sort of plastic cheese. And everybody knows that Kraft American cheese is this slightly horrible yellow I think you can drop slightly from that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> burger cheese, cheese you'd put on your burger. Uh, not even that good, but yes, yes. I mean, I suppose there's something something quite interesting to that point that's expressed in the book's forward, because we should say that the editor um, of the volume is is American. She's from Vermont, and, and, and many of the contributors are American. And in, in the book's forward... The question is asked, can we Americans be the saviours of French terroir? I mean, that's quite... I mean, it sounds a bit like when Hollywood interprets the final stages of the Second World War to me. (laughs) It does. Uh, But it's also important to say, Thea, that the author of the uh, foreword is a cheesemaker in Vermont. I see. 
And is Vermont a, uh, a place where one can get good cheese? Uh, of a certain sort, yes. Actually, actually, I'm probably unfair there, since I haven't been to Vermont for two or three years, and it's probably the variety now is much greater than it used to be. And, and it's true It's true that, that cheese in America now is, is big business, certainly bigger business than it has been previously. I think I think you you mentioned um, an article that says that by next year the, the, the market will total something like $19 billion. Yeah, it is an important economic product, yes. It's also true that the quality has improved a great deal. I mean, to say that it's uh, an uh, important product probably misleads a little bit about the quality because, in fact, there's loads and loads of artisanal cheese, and as there has been since the 60s, since I can remember uh, eating Laurie Chanel's goat cheese mm, an awfully <laughs> long time ago. I mean, 60s or 70s, I should think. You say the companion is weakest on cheese politics. Yes. Uh, what are cheese politics? And is, what does, it, does it tell us something more broadly about about politics and nation states in general, or, or, or is this the politics of rivals in the cheese-making fraternity? Uh, both, actually, Stig. Uh, it's, first of all, the p- politics of cheese has largely to do with the use of raw or unpasteurized milk in making cheese. This means that the health authorities of each country have more to do with import and export standards than is apparent, uh, and that the politics are dictated quite often by these considerations rather than by financial ones. And, and what should, I mean, is, is the purest form should be raw milk? Yeah, I mean, raw milk it makes superior cheese. It's as simple as that. But that And that's being slowly pasteurised out of existence, is it? No, it's coming back. Yeah, it's, I it's, mean, so you, you give the example in your piece, the, the famous example of Stilton, which yeah. you will now not, really find you'll buy Stitchelton instead of Stilton if you want. Yeah. I mean, that's Stilton. an extraordinary story in that uh, the, the, the people who... Have, uh, Stilton, had, there was a scare uh, in the... Uh, I can't remember when it was now. Uh, and the uh, Stilton makers, there were five of them, uh, all invested in pasteurization equipment. It was then discovered that the outbreak of Listeria was not connected to Stilton. Ah. But it was too late. They had already invested heavily in the equipment, so they were determined to use it, uh, with the result that when it came time to write the uh, specification for the um, Terrar specification, five manufacturers of Stilton saw to it that pasteurization of the milk was featured as one of the characteristics, uh, so, so prop- the legal characteristics of Stilton. So proper Stilton, if I buy something that says Stilton on it, isn't Stilton? Uh, not really. I, not would say, I would sense. say not really. They would sue me, but I would say not really. <laughs> uh, could, could, could you, could, if, I, if I put a blindfold on you, Paul, and gave you Stitchelton and Stilton, would you be able to take, taste the difference? Uh, you can, you can say yes, because we're not actually going to yes, carry some, out the test. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes yes, because the Stitchelton, which is made with raw milk and actually is a Stilton, but isn't allowed to be called Stilton because of the, specific, the European specifications, uh, is usually creamier 
It also tends to in be a slightly that, different colour. In the way that if you remember old-fashioned Stilton used to be. Are we cheese snobs now, Paul? Because you know, there's, there's a reference in, in this book to the slow food movement and the idea that we are becoming more sophisticated once more in our palates. Do you think we are now, let's talk about Britain before we uh, criticise the Americans again, uh, a sort of nation of, of cheese snobs? I know uh, theories. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I hope we're becoming the, the cheese snobs uh, because uh, it's, it's very, very good for the artisans who are making the cheese if we exhibit a little bit of snobbery about their product uh, and it creates uh, uh, you know an increased market for their for, for, for their manufacture exactly and the same goes for for everything from you know, beer as well it's exactly yeah, exactly the absolutely. same thing and and wine and wine and and, and do we because you know we do live in a, in the land where farmers markets exist far more than these have we seen that have we seen that increase in in a drive for quality yes a huge we have seen also a wonderful increase in variety. We go to a, a new cheesemonger that's popped up in Oxford, and every time we go, there seems to be something new. Mm. So even to, you, even to you, Paul, you're still trying cheeses you've never had before? Yeah. After a lifetime yeah. of, of, yes. of, of trying yes, cheese? Yes, absolutely. And we, we, we have one made around the corner called Rollwright, which didn't exist so far as I know yeah. until very recently. Well, and just around the corner from us, uh, I mean, obviously we're very close it, the TLS office is just around the corner yeah. from Neil's yard, which is yeah. a danger to my salary, but it just you know, a few metres from there, underneath Bermondsey Arches, new, new cheeses new cheese was developed only about, I think Absolutely. five years ago, the Bermondsey the, uh, Bermondsey, um, what's it called? Bermondsey Cruncher or Bermondsey Cheddar oh, yes, or something delicious. like that, yes. which is yeah. delicious and I yeah. think it was made from an old, old, old recipe yeah. that someone rediscovered yeah. and and hooray, there's another cheese, another. Stig just looks so sceptical No, but. no, I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by, by this Paul, I, 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 what we're talking about, Thea's just told a cheese that she's a fan of, I'm, I'm always keen for this show to give tips to people, Paul, if you could only have one cheese again, Paul, in, in your life oh what God. would it be? You know, I think I'd go for a very old and high-quality cheddar. Oh, even though cheddar, of course, is 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 a is a mode of making cheese rather than an actual cheese. There are still some that have the POA, and um, there there are several farmhouse cheddars that that and everybody knows what they are. And uh, I think uh, that I think that's what I that's would what you, So there are authentic, more authentic cheddars than the not than the, and less authentic cheddars. Oh yes, so they definitely are. Maybe one should say higher and lesser quality. But since cheddaring is a, a way of making cheese, it's a name that applies to an awful lot of sins as well as oh, to an yeah. awful lot of. Thea, Paul, I'm going to be honest with you, Thea's, uh, Thea, in previous uh, conversations with me, has, has, has talked down the, the cheddar. I'm not, I'm not a, it's true, I'm not a huge fan of cheddar. <laughs> there are other cheeses I would prefer to eat. I think if I were going to have one last cheese, mm. I mean, I should probably represent my native Lombardy here and, and yeah. say, you know, Thalidge or something like that. But I think I would actually go for something like a Tunworth. I love a Tunworth. Yes, it is very good. I well, really I am partial. I will confess <laughs> that... It, Every Christmas, we have an enormous chunk of Stitchelton. Ah, proper Stilton. Uh, just finally, Paul, just tell us this. Who is buying this book? The Oxford Companion to Cheese. I've seen it on Thea's desk. It's the size of the Bible. Yeah. What is it, what is it there for, do you think? And does it, does it do that? Well, it fails to do one really important thing that other Oxford Companions do, such as the Oxford Companion to Wine or the Oxford Companion to Food, 
and that is it doesn't quite have the last word that is the authority to settle bets. <laughs> and so, well, that, let's leave it there, Paul. That's, that's, that's quite a, a damning final conclusion, but it, it's not quite authoritative enough for your tastes. It's not quite there. OK, Paul Levy, thank, thank you, you very, very much, much indeed. I didn't want to say this in front of Paul, but uh, I had some mini baby bell last night. I bet you didn't. I bet you're just saying no, that did. just to incense me. I did. Okay. <laughs> in my fridge, because I have young children who like this, there are three types of mini baby bell. There's a cheddar one, a, the original red one, and there's a gouda one. Are the, are the, is cheddar and gouda, are they both in inverted commas? I don't commas? know. I've not, I've, not, I've not explored the ingredients. And don't do that. from an interesting etymology point of view, why is it called a mini baby bell when the baby part of it, yeah. I think, carries the size argument is it a tautology is there an actual baby is it a tautology or does baby refer to the youth of the cheese is it supposed to be that it's extremely fresh young cheese is that right perhaps i don't know is there is there is there a big baby we don't believe there is a big baby bell do we well i've just in fact paul levy was on the phone he's world-renowned cheese i don't think i don't think he would have known i think it would have been beneath him would he have lost respect for me he would if he he? if he had any at all he would have lost it (laughs) and as he as paul levy listens back to this as i fondly imagine him doing as he as he eats some Stitchelton. Uh, and, and this is back to this podcast. He's going to think, oh my God, he's mentioned mini baby bell. I hope you'd also like to note there that I synergised my two main purposes on this podcast to connect you on your pron- pronunciation and cheese. and cheese. I also like the fact there that this uh, expert, Paul Levy, loved a cheddar and you are renowned in the TLS offices for being anti cheddar. I feel it has been mis- sort of overstated. By, I, there are other cheeses that I would prefer. And I also love British cheeses. <laughs> I love the fact we've just spent 10 minutes talking about cheese. I mean, I like cheese. I mean, everyone likes cheese, but I, I, I would eat a craft cheese slice. Well, there is an entry. There's an entry in this uh, companion for cheese aversion, which is a, a complex dating like very a far phobia. back. Well, sort of. I mean, it, it verges on phobia in more extreme cases. Really? People who see cheese as an absolute perversion in it. Perversion? You know, it brings them out in hives. See, and you, it's not an allergic reaction. It's an aversion. A perversion or aversion? An aversion. Oh, I was going to say, perverse cheese, I, I could start getting interested about. But when it's, uh, That's worrying. Can, you know, we, can we end this now, please? Yeah, let's end it now. That's all we have time for this week before this goes into a very dark and strange place. Uh, our thanks go to Paul Levy, Stephanie McCurry and Bianca Maria Fontana. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which has another cover drawn by our artist Darren Smith and celebrates European culture. Yes, even in this post-Brexit world, with pieces on Foucault, Benjamin, Pasolini, Camus, Huelbeck, among others. And do tweet this podcast at at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. And please review us on iTunes. Now, last week, if you recall and are a regular listener, I promised that we would be talking philosophy. I got my dates mixed up like a cretin. But next week, we really shall be discussing philosophy with Professor Tim Crane, who, as we know... Thea has promised to solve the mind-body problem. Will he do it? I think he will. I'm almost sure he will. There's only one way to find out. Until (laughs) then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 